Good morning. I've been excited about today. Today is Pentecost Sunday. There's a lot that goes with that, and it's, you know, there, there are certain days and holidays that you kind of feel like, okay, this is something that obviously needs to be spoken on, it needs to be addressed from the pulpit, but so many times it can, I, how many know I never want those kind of things just be, something that we do just because it's kind of expected. I always like to back up and, and approach things, try to approach from a, a fresh point of view. So I begin to think about Pentecost and what that means. And I remembered a joke I heard a long time ago. So please bear with me for just a moment. And this isn't a shot at anybody, but this is pretty funny. There was a Baptist pastor and his wife that pastored a church. And they were, they were the type that they were constantly concerned about what everybody in their congregation thought. And so they decided they wanted a dog. But they didn't want just any dog. They said, no, if we're going to get a dog, we want to make sure that we get a Baptist dog. So they began to search. And finding a Baptist dog was just going to be a little bit hard to find. So finally they settled on a, a place, a, a very prominent kind of high-end uh, pet store. And they knew that it was going to cost a little extra to get what they wanted. Went. So they went in and they spoke directly with the manager. They said, we're looking for a Baptist dog. And so the manager says, I've got just the dog. So the manager comes walking in and lays a Bible on the counter and he goes and gets this dog and he brings the dog in and he says, watch this, you're going to love it. He speaks to the dog, he says, fetch the Bible. The dog runs over there and grabs the Bible, brings it right back over and sits it down right at his feet. And he's like, they're like, oh, this is great. The manager says, you haven't seen anything yet. He looks at the dog, he says, find the 23rd Psalm. The dog begins, takes his nose and nudges the Bible over, open, licks his paw, and with amazing dexterity begins to flip through the pages until he finds the 23rd Psalm, and he lays his paw right on it. And they were like, good boy, good boy. And they were like, oh, we're sold. This is our dog. So they buy the dog. They take it home. A few nights later, people from the church come over. They can't wait to show off their new dog. So they bring the dog in. They're building it up to the people. They said, watch this. So the, the pastor looks at his dog and he says, go fetch the Bible. The dog runs over and fetches the Bible and brings it back and sits it down. Everybody's like, whoa. He says, oh, you haven't seen nothing yet. Find the 23rd Psalm. The dog does the same thing he did before, flips over and finds the 23rd Psalm, lays his paw on it. Everybody's amazed. They're like, wow, this is really, where did you find this dog? And then one person in the crowd, I mean, there's always one person in the crowd. They said, well, can the dog do any normal commands? And the pastor thinks for a moment. He goes, you know, I don't know. Let's see. So he looks at the dog and he points his heel. And the dog comes running over, jumps up in the chair next to him, lays his paw on his forehead, and begins to look up and howl. (laughs) And the Baptist pastor's wife looked at each other and says, we've been swindled. They gave us a Pentecostal dog. You know, but in some circles, 
Pentecost is almost a dirty word, almost something that people want to put in another category. Sometimes you can almost have a conversation with something, and the word Pentecost comes up, and you can almost hear, oh, you're Pentecostal, and there's a little more space given between you and somebody else. I guess contagious or something. So what comes to mind when you hear the word Pentecost? What is Pentecost? Well, we know when the day of Pentecost happened, as far as the early church is concerned, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, we read this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord, in one place, and there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one set on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Think about that. And it goes on and begins to describe all the people that were in the sound because this was, believe it or not, we'll get into more details later, but Pentecost was a Jewish holiday before the day of Pentecost that we celebrate. So there were already people gathered in Jerusalem. And, the, and it goes on to describe all the different nationalities and the people were there. And it, and it was this quite this scene that was created because as they began to speak in tongues, there were different people that were there. They were from another place. They were like, wait a minute, I hear somebody speaking in my language, declaring the praises of the Lord. And so it drew a crowd. What is this? What is going on? Acts chapter 2 verse 12 makes this statement, which is where I want to start off this morning. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So this morning, I want to tackle the subject. I want to answer that question that was asked that day. Because I believe many people are still asking that question today. When it comes to Pentecost, what does this mean? It was asked on that day, and I believe many people are asking today. They don't really understand what Pentecost means. They may have a mental image of something that isn't accurate. But I want to answer some of those questions. As a matter of fact, I want to take some of the questions that are associated with that and begin to answer that as we break down the Scripture this morning. See, Pentecost was originally related to a Jewish harvest festival, which commemorates, literally, it was a holiday that, was, that celebrated the harvest that took place 50 days after the Exodus, and it lined up with the time period that God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So it was a holiday that was already celebrated in the Jewish culture. So this wasn't, that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was not the first Pentecost holiday. Isn't it great how God took and takes the holidays that were celebrated by the Jews and lines up with something he did and does in the New Testament? See, God is a God of order. God is a God that, that ties it all together. I love how it's where people try to say that it's just a bu- bunch of myths, but if it's made up stories, there's no way as humans we could tie all the pieces together like God through the power of the Holy Spirit ties things as we study them. Eventually, the term Pentecost became associated with the gospel believers because Pentecost 
The second chapter of Acts, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, happens, happened 50 days after Easter. So just like Easter moves a little bit because of the change in the Jewish calendar compared to ours, Pentecost moves because Pentecost is celebrated 50 days. So 50 days after the resurrection of Christ is when they were gathered together in that upper room and God poured out his spirit. The early church called Pentecost Sunday White Sunday. Those who were being baptized between Easter and Pentecost would wear white robes and were referred to as the white-robed ones. It was a special season they called on. And so you can understand, when they asked the question, we're going to discuss that, they asked the question, what does this mean? People were already gathered in the city. It was already a celebration, and then God pours out his spirit on that day with the crowd there, and we know that as Peter stood up and spoke, 3,000 people came into the kingdom of Jesus Christ that day. So what does this mean? See, this is the point that the Holy Spirit steps onto the scene in a whole new way. Before in the Old Testament, there was a select few people. There were prophets and different ones that that God would pour out His Spirit on, and they would be full of His Spirit, but they were here and there, and they were scattered around. But this marked a new time. This marked a time and a season when, just like Scripture said, that He poured out His Spirit on all flesh. That that same Holy Spirit that was available for the prophets and certain people is now available for all of us that is believers. That we can be filled with His presence and with His Spirit. So just like the question, though we need to answer today, is what does Pentecost mean to us today? What does this mean? So we're going to answer this question along with some others. Number one, the question I think we need to answer this morning is who is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? Because sometimes I think we have misconceptions. We know, we say, well, he's part of the Godhead. He's part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Although there are, are some that claim that it's Jesus only and it's just three different manifestations of Jesus. And, and we get caught up in this whole thing of arguing back and forth of what this is and how that works. And, and some people try to accuse us of, being, of serving three gods. But to me, if you look at Scripture, it makes it pretty clear that it's three in one. The Trinity. You know, the best way I ever found to illustrate it is an egg. An egg has three parts. You've got eggshell, egg whites, and egg yolks. But they're all egg. You've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's all God. But the problem is, sometimes we get so caught up, though, in trying to explain things that our mortal minds can't comprehend. And so we develop these little debates between different groups of believers and all these things that happen. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in debating our little decision, our little, our little section of how we believe that sometimes we're splitting hairs over things that don't really matter all that much. Just because I can't comprehend it doesn't mean that I have to define it. His ways are higher than my ways. And we can get so caught up in that. But I do know this. The three and one was definitely illustrated in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. It says, 
Jesus was baptized, and it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right there you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in action at the same time. So the Holy Spirit, though, is probably the most misunderstood. We're pretty good. We can kind of picture who God is. Probably every one of us has some form of a picture of some very wise-looking, very majestic and powerful gray-haired man with a beard sitting on a throne somewhere. In heaven, we say, that's God the Father. We can picture Jesus walking this earth as a man, and we can picture the scars and the wounds that he took on our behalf. But it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more difficult for us to put a picture on the Holy Spirit because he's described as, as, as he's symbolized as, as breath and wind and oil and fire and a dove. That's a little less concrete, isn't it? But make no mistake, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is God, the Holy Spirit. He's not a force. He's not a holy mist. He's not a thing or an it. He is the Holy Spirit. He has a mission, and his mission is to reveal Jesus to us. Just as Jesus' mission was, was to show us the Father. And the Father's mission was, because he loved us so much, was to send his Son to pay the price for us. What we see is we see them working together in perfect harmony. They are one. They are three, yet one. You see, there's never been a need for a crisis management meeting between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've never had to work things out among them. There's no power struggle because they are one. But the Holy Spirit gives us gifts for use in ministry and empowers us. He I like to liken it to this. You know, there are things I can accomplish. I could cross a lake with a boat and some oars. I might have to stop a few times and pant because I haven't done that in a long time. But I could eventually get there. But how much better if I could just hoist up a sail and catch the wind and just move me across? That's the way I look at the infilling of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of things in this Christian life that we can accomplish if we work our tails to the bone, so to speak. But isn't it much easier just to to hoist that cell and say, Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Come fill this cell. Come blow me where you desire for me to go. You're in charge. And the empowerment that comes from that is amazing. The Holy Spirit is the one that draws us. He's the one that convicts us of sins. He's the one that comforts us and teaches us. He's the one that guides us. He even at times commands us. He fills us with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and He dwells in us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go into a long thing today, but in essence, there are three times that God lit fire. When the tabernacle was dedicated, 
he sent the fire. When the temple was dedicated, he sent the fire. When the church became us being the living temples, he sent the fire. So he is, we are now the ones we get to walk and carry his spirit in us. Why would we not desire everything that he has for us? One of the questions I get that I want to answer, well, didn't I receive him at salvation? Short answer is yes. Yes, you did. Long answer is no, but that's not the same thing as the baptism in the Holy Spirit. See, it's not the same thing as our new birth. In Acts chapter 1, what did Jesus say to his apostles he says, and being, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We actually see in, in Acts chapter 8, we see that Stephen had just been stoned. We know that as, as the gospel began to spread and the 3,000 got saved on that day of Pentecost, and how many know that anytime God begins to move, the enemy is going to raise up an opposition? It's just part of it. So persecution breaks out. And Stephen ends up being stoned because he, you know, the, the Pharisees didn't like him putting them in their place. So they get angry and they stone him. And it just, you know, and it kind of seemed like that there's a segment of the society, the Jewish culture that liked what just happened. And it's like, hey, we're getting a good reaction. The polling numbers are looking favorable because of this, you might say. So let's wrap this up. So persecution breaks out, and, and the church began to spread from Jerusalem because of the persecution. But what they thought was going to put the thing out literally just spread the fire. Kind of like the time when I was a kid, I accidentally poured too much lighter fluid on some coals, and the fly, fire came up, the, and it, I literally watched it ride the stream and set the whole can on fire. And I threw it down, and fire was everywhere. And I decided to put it out, so I went and grabbed a water hose. Wasn't too smart in that day and time, you know. And the more I sprayed water on it, the more it spread. It's kind of what happened as the persecution broke out. They thought they were going to put the fire out, but the more they tried to put it out, the more it spread. And so in Acts chapter 8, we see that Philip had gone to Samaria and began to preach the gospel and that people received Christ and they were baptized. And, and then he moves on. And so finally they send John, Peter and John to go check on what had happened in Samaria. Because if you remember, they didn't care, but the Jews didn't care much about the Samaritans. And so the fact that Samaritans got saved, go check this out. So we catch up at verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had, not, he had fallen upon none of them, for they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Here we see a clear illustration of a separate act from giving their life to Christ. 
In Acts chapter 19, we see very, something very similar happens again when, uh, when Paul shows up to, in Ephesus and people are filled with the Spirit. It's an incredible thing, an incredible time. And we see that that begin to happen. And so, so it, this, this thing that we're talking about is a separate act from giving our life to Christ. All the time I hear people, but, but the Holy Spirit's active in my life. Let me kind of put it this way. If you have, how many know you can have a jar and you can pour some water in it? And we ask Christ into our life or when when the Holy Spirit comes and draws us and we surrender and he comes into our life. Yes, the Holy Spirit enters into our life. It is part of that work of being saved. And yes, God can still use you. God can do things and things can happen. But it is not the same as being filled. Just because there's some in there. I mean, if you had a jar of water, just because there's a little bit in there doesn't mean that jar is filled. You can pour until it overflows. Then the jar is filled. And so being filled with the Spirit is a little bit different. So then the next thing we hear is many times people ask, so wasn't that just for the apostles? Well, I'll answer the question, that question with another question. Do we still need his power today to stand and to be his witnesses? Do we look around and see the world today and the world is in desperate need of a church that is full of his power? So do you think God just would send his spirit for a season? To, yes, he did amazing things to get the church started. But he's like, okay, guys, now you're on your own. No, he intended his church to be an empowered church. Many movements today try to subdivide things. They try to say that, 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 that the church age is somehow subdivided. That there was a time that his spirit was outpoured, but it's not for today. There's a difference. Let me read you something. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. When Peter was speaking on the day of Pentecost, and he was talking to those that were there, the very group that asked, what does this mean? As he is answering their question, he makes this statement. He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel When he said, and it shall come to pass that in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your son and daughter shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. I want you to underline where it says this, in the last days. I said one question. What comes after last? There are people that try to say that, that, well, that was just for that season. No, he, the prophet Joel spoke and Peter stood up and says, this is that. That in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. It doesn't say, well, this is for a season. He said, this is what he says, that in the last days. We are in the church age. The church was established on the day of Pentecost. The church is still in existence. Our mission has not changed. We are in the last days until that trumpet sounds. And we are intended to be an empowered people. And Peter, if you read it, if you continue on, Peter makes it even a little clearer. Acts 2.39 
As he's talking about that, as he's explaining, once again, he's answering that question. What does this mean? He says, for this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter just made it generational. So to say that this has gone away and it's not for today is not a scriptural explanation. There's a man by the name of Jack Deere that uh, there was a minister that was up of a background and kind of a theologian that, that believed that, that, there was, that there was an end, that, that there was a season for that, and it's not for today. But he had an encounter with God that changed everything, and he wrote a book called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. It's definitely worth reading. And one of the things, one of the statements that he makes is he said, we all have our pre-programmed preconceptions from the denomination or the background we were growing up in. He says, the best thing we can do as believers is read the Bible like we're, like, like we're a 12-year-old and just take it for what it says and not make it too complicated. He says, if you just read it and take it for what it says, you'll most likely arrive at the right conclusions. See, the truth is God desires his people to be empowered, and that has not changed. So the next question that many people ask is, well, why should I seek this? But see, Scripture shows us a very clear layout of how things were intended to be. Salvation being drawn by the Spirit, surrendering to Christ, following Him in water baptism, and then being baptized by the Holy Spirit. So many people stop short. Matter of fact, there's, there's been studies that have been done that shows that the ones that, that uh, just s- s- surrender their lives to Christ, but yet don't follow Him in water baptism, has a, have a much higher percentage of falling away. The ones that follow in water baptism have a much greater success rate statistically. Those that take the next step and follow in being baptized in the Holy Spirit have an even higher success rate in remaining strong in the faith. So why would we not want that? Why would we add a question, ask a question like, why should I seek this? See, Jesus himself told of the overflowing fullness of his Spirit in, in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, said, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then it goes on to say, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, there's a power of service and ministry. He didn't want his children left in this world without power. We don't have to do this thing strictly by our own willpower. I don't know about you, my willpower is not always the greatest. Oh, I have moments that I'm like, I'm on this, I'm going to do it, and then somewhere along the way something gets derailed. I don't know about you, I need a little extra power, a little boost along the way. He didn't want us to be that way. 
Because he intended his church to be full of his spirit. We're supposed to be the world changers. Isn't it interesting that when they were walking, when the early church was walking in the fullness of the power of the spirit, they were turning the world upside down. There's places that when the disciples showed up, the people in the community said, oh no, those that are turning the world upside down are now here. Actually, I have a different view. They were turning the world right side up. It just seemed upside down to them. But the thing that's interesting to me, the more the church has gotten away from being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and operating in those gifts, the more nominalized we've become. The more less of an influence in our society we have become. Because we're not walking in that power and the authority that we've been given. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. We know, actually wrote two. Actually, I believe there's three, but there's only two that we have copies of. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 11, Paul says this. Now, I want you to keep in mind, he's writing this letter to an existing church. And I want you to also understand that this was written approximately 50 years after Christ. So we're talking a little bit of time has passed by. And so he's not speaking to other apostles. He is speaking to a church of believers. I want you to get that. And he says this, But the manifestations of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works in all these, distributing to each one individually as he wills. He meant... For his church and his people to be operating in the gifts of the Spirit. That was what the early church was all about. They operated in the gifts. When they showed up, there was movement of the Holy Spirit. There were things that were happening. People were being touched and transformed and healed and set free. And all these things that happened. And these gifts were in operation. Let me say one more thing. There's something else we're supposed to have. Don't be operating in the gifts of the Spirit if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. Because he also said in Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithful, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If his church are operating with the fruit of the Spirit evident in their lives. Jesus himself said that we will be known by our fruit. So we can't be judgmental, condemning, hardcore, hateful people and say, well, I'm just operating in the gifts of the Spirit. No, you're not. Then I always get this question, but isn't that weird? I don't know about this praying in tongues thing. I don't know about that. It's just weird. Yes, it is. Matter of fact, 
We see on this very thing we're reading, Acts 2, 12, and 13. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they're full of new wine. It created a controversy. I mean, think about this. When God poured out his spirit the first time, it created a controversy. When he moves in our churches today, it creates a controversy. Let's just get over it. There were those that were amazed. What does this mean? And there are others that just began making fun of it because they didn't understand what was happening. Yes, it is weird. Okay, that's the way it works. But all throughout Scripture, God does things in unusual ways. I mean, think about this. God used a donkey to get a message to a wayward prophet. That's weird. He created from nothing a great fish to transport another wayward prophet to Nineveh. He made an underwater taxi. That's weird. He, he, the king of kings, was born in a stable. His very son being born to a virgin. It was, the birth was announced to shepherds. Those things don't fit. It's weird. I mean, the shepherds were the first ones to get the news. You know how lowly shepherds were thought of in that culture? Literally in the court of law, it took like three shepherds to equal the testimony of one person that wasn't a shepherd. And yet God chose to show them first. He also used fishermen and tax collectors to spread this gospel. Not theologians. So why not tongues? Is that really so weird? Because God kind of has a habit. We could go on and on and on about weird things he did. Like you want to be healed from leprosy? Go dip, dip in the Jordan River seven times. Told one king, you want to win a victory? Here, take these arrows and beat them on the ground. And he half-heartedly did it. And God said, because you half-heartedly did it, I will give you three victories, I think it is. But if you had to beat them until they were no more, I would have given you victory over all your enemies. See, he does. He gives. Sometimes he gives us things. Sometimes he packages things in a way that it just takes faith. It takes follow through. We have to do the thing that seems weird to us because it's showing obedience and it's showing faith. And he will show up and move when we obey his voice. So why not tongues? Is that really so weird compared? Acts 2, 4, it simply says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So why tongues? It's a small thing. But James, in James chapter 3, says it's the hardest thing to control. How many agree with that? How many ever been in that situation that even if you did stop something you were about to say, you almost had to bite your tongue to get, get it to stop wagging a little bit, you know? It's like. So what better way to show surrender than to say, look, even my tongue is yielded to God. 
See, sadly, many times because of a few uncomfortable moments, many movements have said, you know what, let's just discard the whole thing or relegate it to a back room somewhere because we don't want to offend anybody. And things can get out of control, let's be honest. Part of the reason Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth was because there were things that were out of control in that church. It almost became a competition to see who was the most spiritual. I mean, it was, it was out of control. And so he wrote this letter saying, okay, this is the way things ought to be done. He said that, that these things should be done decently and in order. We'll read more about that a little bit later. But he wrote that to deal with those things. But let me say this. I'd rather deal with a few things that are exaggerated that we have to quietly say, okay, let's get this under control. You're a little off base here. Than to say, let's relegate it somewhere else. Let's not allow any of that in the church. We've made a mistake when we say, this is not the place. 1 Corinthians 14, 39 through 40. Remember again, a letter to the church, approximately 50 years after Christ. Paul says this, Therefore, brethren, talking to the church at Corinth, desire earnestly to prophesy. And he says this, I don't know why some groups kind of don't even mention this verse. He says, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Oh, that's in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Bible. But then he says, let all things be done decently and in order. See, when we gather together, have you ever noticed how that it's like we show up and there's a theme to the service that the worship songs align. I don't contact Steve every week and say, okay, to make sure you align with my sermon, I want you to do this song, this song. Every now and then I might throw out one song, hey, it'd be kind of cool if we did this song. But have you ever noticed week after week after week, the Holy Spirit orchestrates a theme for the service. Everything flows in that direction. And anything God does through His Holy Spirit, if it's really the Holy Spirit, it's going to align with what He is doing. If something happens that completely feels foreign and redirects things from where they need to be, then that is not of God. Because the Holy Spirit's really moving, it's going to be done decently and in order. But I never, ever want to say, Lord, don't move. I've told our worship team, I tell everybody here, if he's moving, we're going to step out of the way. Our plans get cast aside and he has free reign. See, there's so many times we think, well, I may offend somebody. Well, guess what? Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. He was, I mean, here's the guy that denied knowing Jesus three times. But after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he, was, he had the boldness in the Spirit to stand up and to speak to those that were saying, what does this mean? And he answered their question. And Scripture tells us 3,000 people came to know Christ that day. We want to repackage things. We want to put it together in fashion. We feel like God needs a market manager. You don't want to offend. Be sure you package things this way and make it so it's palatable for the world around us. 
Yes, we need to love people where they are. We need to tell them that there's a better way. They don't, we, they don't need to be met at the door with us pointing out every little thing that's wrong with them. But they need a demonstration of God's power of His Holy Spirit so that they can say God is in that place. Bible says Bible says that literally makes this statement that we need to follow him that we need to walk with him that we need to know him that we need to be full of his spirit that we need to make sure that we're walking that goodness because his Holy Spirit is the one that will draw people in People don't come to Christ. We can't repackage things. We can't put things in some kind of special order that will draw people in. It's not our job to market him. It's our job to proclaim the good news and let the Holy Spirit come and draw people to him. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Yes, he was talking about the cross, but he was also talking about how if we lift him up, how if we make him supreme, how that if we do things riotous and we truly are his church, that people will be drawn. Because only the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can come in and can say, convict us of our sins that give us have you ever had remember when you gave your life to Christ how that all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came in and drew you and all of a sudden you had this realization of how truly sinful you were and how far short you fell and you just knew you realized for the first time you saw your life and the way you did things through his eyes and you realized how ugly that was to him and you couldn't wait to unload all of those things and get them out of your life That's his job. So bring it to a close if I can get some music. What now? Tonight we're doing the the service combined churches in Levon. And I've been asked to give my testimony of how I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Because I was raised in this my whole life. Unlike other people, I grew up around this stuff. But I can be a little stubborn. Come, come, will tell you, it's true. I, at the same time, I tend to analyze things. And even though I believed all this was true, I'm not going to give everything away. But it was later in life. I was never filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit until after we were married. And so I'm going to tell the story of how God, even in my circumstance, came along long and dramatically filled me. He met me where I was at. He's a personal God. There's not a cookie cutter to anything. He knows you better than you know yourself. 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. If we're a soldier, I believe that we're in the midst of spiritual warfare. 
As we live this life, in all honesty, we're in enemy territory. We're trying to survive and live and make it in enemy territory. This is not my home. And as as we begin to walk in that, why would we not want, since we're caught in this war, why would we not want to use every single weapon at our disposal to advance the kingdom, to stand for him? yet I hear people make comments like that's weird, that makes me a little uncomfortable, you know what when you're in a war zone do you not wear your bulletproof vest because it's uncomfortable do you not sharpen your two edged sword because it's a little pokey to carry around we have to realize we're in this war why would we not suit up with all the armor that's been given us? Why not would we, would we not make sure that that sword of the Spirit is sharp and ready to go and we'll be walking full of His Spirit and His power and be His people to overcome the world around us because we live in a lost and dangerous place and they need to see that there is power to overcome and that we are full of His Spirit that we can stand up and we can be those people in the face of the things that the world is throwing at us. Jesus' own words. And then we're going to pray. Mark 16, 17, 18. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And they will drink anything deadly. It will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. He's not saying we go out and we play with poison and snakes on purpose. Believe it or not, I have been asked once before, do you guys handle snakes? I don't know why people associate that in Pentecost. We just say this. If snakes are in the building, I won't be. Matter of fact, this week, Matt sent me a picture. He was up here and had to kill one by one of the doors, so... Yeah, Satan was trying to get in. Matt decapitated him, so we're good. But Jesus said these are the things that would follow his believers. James even said, Is there any sick among you? Call upon the elders of church and anoint with oil, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. serve a powerful God why would we want to walk through this life unarmed this morning I'm going to ask our prayer team to come if you're here we believe in the moving and the power of the gifts of the spirit I won't apologize from that I won't back away from that. That's who we are, and that's what we're supposed to be. And I realize that may mean that there's some people just say this isn't the church for them. But I believe if we do it right, that an active church that is alive and full of this power is what people are looking for, even if they don't realize it. And we're going to be that. 